So I want to begin this morning by speaking for what I think is probably about 90% of the men in this world. And that is that one of our least favorite things to do is to consult the directions. <laughs> Whether it's putting together IKEA furniture or programming a garage door opener, which I tried to do this week without much luck. One, one of the things I like to think of is that I'm able to figure it out. Figure it out. But what can happen is that when, when I try to do this without the instructions, is that most of the time, it ends up making a bigger mess of things than when I first started. Because like it or not, there are things in this world that we need to consult the directions for, the instruction manual for. And I brought something with me that I think illustrates this for us this morning. Grab it for a second. This is a technique, which is kind of like Lego, replica Porsche 911. And uh, this has over a thousand pieces. And it's not mine, it's one of my friends. And he said that it took him over 40 hours to build this. The instruction manual, if you have Lego kits, who has a Lego kit here? Raise your hand, yeah? The instruction manual for most Lego kits is what, 15 pages? This is 500 pages. Could you imagine trying to build this car without the instructions? It would be absolutely impossible. All of the individual pieces, the thousand individual pieces, came in this kit together and were put there for a very specific purpose. They all work together to make this Porsche. Without the instruction manual, you would be unable, completely unable, to make it look like it's supposed to. One wrong piece would set off a chain reaction and it would, it would resemble something completely different. John talks in this passage about purpose or instructions. Even though he doesn't use the word here, he, he alludes to it. He uses a Greek word that people would have picked up on in his day and known what he was talking about. He says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. You see, the word in Greek is, is, is the word logos. Logos means word. And in the time that John is writing his gospel, the people in that time would know about the logos. Because the ancient philosophers and thinkers of the world were, were looking for the reason or the purpose for what the world was here for. What were, what were we supposed to be doing? What was this world all about? And the way that they described the purpose or the meaning was the word logos. And there was different interpretations between the different schools of philosophy as what what is the Logos? What is the meaning? What is the purpose? You know, this isn't just a question of ancient philosophy, though. The question still has a lot of resonance today for right here and right now. And so as we see, as we look around the world that we live in, we can't help but ask ourselves the same question. What's the reason? 
What's the purpose? What's the logos? Just recently, Tracy and I moved into a neighborhood, and so we're starting to get to know our neighbors, and, and through conversations, we, we met one of our neighbors the other day, and, and he informed us that, that he's recently retired, and that he's struggling to figure out what to do with his time, as is common among people who are newly retired. You know, the, the having so much energy apart from, you know, the day-to-day -day ins and outs of working, resting, working, resting. When the work disappears, it can start to bring up some questions. You know, one of the reasons why a lot of people love to be busy is because then we don't have to think about these things, right? The busier we are, the harder it is to have time where we're not thinking about what am I really doing here? This is perhaps one of the reasons why the scriptures are so clear that we need to spend time in Sabbath rest with nothing on our minds, no work to be done, so we can remember the reason or the purpose that God has placed us in this world. Because it's amazing how easily we can get busy in our lives and lose sight of these things. You know, work, school, families, good things, God-given things can easily take the place of our logos, the reason for our life, the rhythm that keeps us going until it's taken away from us and we stand there going, wait, what? Where did it go? You can try your whole life to find the reason to live or the purpose for life and have it being taken away from you. You know, work can be our purpose until we retire. Family can be our purpose until the kids move out. Health and our bodies being active or being able to be mobile and get around can be our, our purpose until the news comes from the doctor. Sports and, and athletics can be our logos until our body can't keep up anymore. And then when the dust settles, we're left asking the question, wait, what? Where did it go? See, where the ancient philosophers and thinkers were searching for the logos, the way to make sense of the world around them, they were looking to ideas philosophies, and John gives them and us something else. He gives us a person, the second person of the Trinity. John makes it very clear that the logos, the reason for the world, is not some abstract philosophical thought. It isn't some idea or something that we do. John makes it clear that he, the logos is a person. A person that has come to us. In verse 14, in the gospel of, uh, the first chapter in the gospel of John, which we'll get to in a second, John says that the logos, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. But who is this word became flesh? See, as a church, we're looking at the words of the Apostles' Creed over the, the past, few, past week when Pastor Chris last week talked about God the Father. This week, we're talking about the, the, the only Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and next week about the Holy Spirit. And last week, when pa Pastor Chris talked about how we know God as our Father, our Heavenly Father, who loves us, his children so much that he wouldn't stop at anything to bring us back into a relationship with himself. This week we talk about how God does that. How does God take the world and, and, and us and put our lives back together, renewing and restoring us 
making us into his image again. He does it by sending us the word of God, his son, Jesus Christ. As the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And then it goes on to describe specific historical events that, that take place. Born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, was buried, descended into hell, the third day rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. The Word became flesh. But there are things in this passage in the Gospel of John that, that he makes clear about who the Son of God, the Word, is. He says in, in verse 1 that there was never a time in which the Word did not exist. The Word has been there from the beginning. More than that, through the Word, God's Word, the creation of the world took place. In the beginning was the word, is what John says. And this phrase would instantly bring into the Jewish mind Genesis 1, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John is making it clear that this word, the Son of God, has always been. And through the word of God came the creation of the world. In fact, the first five verses of his gospel are a direct explanation of the Son of God and his divinity. The word, the Logos, is God, has always been God, and will continue to be God forever. Now throughout history, a lot of people have gotten hung up on this. There's been a lot of debate back and forth as to what does this actually mean? How can a person be fully God and fully human? Is he fully God, fully human? Part God, part human? But throughout history, the, the church has remained steadfast in the divine mystery that the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. There are three creeds in the Christian Reformed Church that we subscribe ourselves to and identify with. The Apostles' Creed, then there's the Nicene Creed, which goes into a little bit more detail about how this works. I'll read these words with you, and I think they're in the back of the Lift Up Your Hearts hymnal if you wanted to follow along. The Nicene Creed says, And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of the Father, through him all things were made. Things in heaven and for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. All this is written by leaders in the church to make it clear to us that we can hold on to the fact that God became human. And in verse 14, we, we see John to say this very explicitly in words that theologians have said over the years that are the most important words ever written. John states that the 
the person through which the whole world was created became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And why are these words so important? That the, the word of God became flesh. Because if you know the story of the Bible, you know that it tells the story of time after time of human beings throwing away the instruction manual that God has created us to live by and trying to do things our own way. And if you read the story of the Bible or look at the history of the world, you know that we're not very good at this. In fact, we're very terrible at it. And we make a mess of things. You know, as I was trying to program the garage door opener without an instruction manual, I ended up making a bigger mess of things than when I originally started. This is why it's so important that the word, the logos, the purpose for the world, the, the way that we were created to live became flesh and dwelt among us, that we could see how he lived. On this passage, John Calvin writes about the distance, the, the chasm that God crossed in order to make his dwelling among us and how, how meaningful this is for us. He says this, How great is the distance between the spiritual glory of the word of God and the stinking filth of our flesh. Yet, the Son of God stooped so low that he took on himself that flesh which is subject to so many miseries. The word born of God before all ages and always dwelling with the Father became man. This verse shows us that, as Pastor Chris talked about last week, we have a Father in heaven, our Daddy, our Papa, who shows us his love by writing himself into the story of the history of the world. And because God wrote himself into our story, he shows us a picture of his glory in Jesus, the Son of God. In the person of Jesus, the glory of God has been revealed to us. What do you think of when you think of God's glory? You know, I th think maybe for most of us, we would think of maybe the episode in Exodus 34 with Moses, when, when God re reveals his character to him and Moses is going back and forth with God and, and saying, you know, how are the Israelites going to know that you're God if you haven't revealed yourself to them, to us? How do we know we can trust you? And then Moses says, show me your glory. Show me your honor. And God says to him, I will, but you can't see my full glory or it'll kill you. Instead, I will pass by you, and I will cover your face with my hand, and I will hide you in a cleft of a rock, but you will see my back, a part, a glimpse of my glory. I think a lot of the time we think of God's glory and honor as something like this, you know, something so bright and so magnificent that we can't even bear to see it, be in the same room as it, and that's true. But what is John talking about when he says that we have seen his glory? Because I think one of the most glorious descriptions of Jesus, the Son of God, is when he's transfigured in front of the eyes of the disciples. But that's not recorded in John. 
we have seen his glory. What's John talking about? Some of us may think of times that that Jesus has cast out demons simply by his word or times that he's healed those who are sick or, or raised Lazarus from the dead. But for John, these are not the clearest pictures of God's glory. If we fast forward near the end of the gospel in chapter 17, Jesus begins what's called the high priestly prayer. And he talks about his glory. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. That your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people. That he might give eternal life to all those you have given them. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. What is the hour of the son's glory that, John is, that Jesus is talking about? The hour of his glory is the hour on the cross. For John, the the, the glory of God is displayed clearly as Jesus embraces the ultimate humility. Dying for his enemies as he's nailed to the cross. Because the hour of Jesus' death came and the light of the world let himself be killed in darkness. Darkness not just in our world but, but darkness in his soul anguish in his soul. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me? This is the glory of Jesus. Not the way that we would think of it all the time. Because the disciples didn't get it right away either. They didn't, it didn't look like it was God's glory at work. But the moment on the cross when Jesus took upon himself the sin and the darkness of the world and let himself be killed for us is, the pic- is a picture of God's glory because through him we receive life. We have seen his glory. The glory of the ultimate act of love and humility. See, in Jesus we see the reversal of the logos, the purpose that we often think of. As we follow Jesus as his disciples, the reversal is that as the word shows us, life comes not from working hard to save ourselves, but by admitting our failure, embracing humility, and following his example, embracing sacrificial love for others, even those who are our enemies. It is the word made flesh dwelling among us how he changed our lives and gives us hope. Leslie Newbegin puts it so well. He says, the gospel is not just an illustration of an idea. It is the story of actions by which the human situation is reversed. The word made flesh and dwelt among us. This is where the spillover happens. As we experience Jesus rebuilding us, making us new, the Holy Spirit fills us with joy and peace and hope in Jesus, his son. And he empowers us to be his witnesses in our world today. Because if Jesus committed himself to dwelling among us, embodying our flesh, so he could pay the price for our sin, he calls us, to do the same.
Pastor Chris mentioned last week that God so loved the world that he sent his son. God so loved the world. If God loves the world, shouldn't we? If God commits himself to dwelling in the world, shouldn't we commit ourselves to doing the same? In our neighborhoods, in our cities? If God commits himself to sacrificing himself for the good of others, shouldn't we do the same? In fact, Jesus gives us this mission to be difference makers in the world. Being filled by the Holy Spirit and sent out to continue the mission of Jesus. Making disciples. It's our purpose is to witness to the light of this Logos. This is a purpose that cannot be taken away. It's a purpose that will be with us for eternity. The Word became flesh. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, there are so many things that we see in your word that we give thanks for, but this is one of them that is just amazing. That you sent your son, your only son, to embrace our sinful flesh and die on the cross for our sin so that we could be made new. Lord, let us be changed by this and transformed by your grace. As you send us out with your spirit, fill us with it, Lord, that we could go into our neighborhoods, go into our cities, go into the world, knowing that you have called us to be your witnesses. That you have filled us for this very purpose and called us to be your disciples so that we may go out and, and, and tell the world of the good news of Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand what this means for us. At First Hamilton, in Hamilton, in our neighborhoods, in our work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.